Pokemon, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing Bright Star. doing. I hope this, the latest episode of The Musical Man, finds you well. We have a lot to address here in the opening segment. As always, the most important bit of news that we need to address is, of course, the passing of Mr. Stephen Sondheim at the age of 91. I am not quite sure how to honor this man and his legacy within the format of this podcast. I feel that words do very little when it comes to honoring that legacy, because the legacy speaks for itself, right? The body of work, the achievements, the accolades, it's astonishing how much he was able to accomplish in his time, in his lifetime. And I often try to remember when key figures in the theatrical community pass away, I try to remind myself that their life is not simply the body of work, right? The achievements, the accolades. It is also about everything that happened in and around before and after all of that was accomplished. The moments of tenderness that I hope he experienced throughout his 91 years, the friendships, the relationships, the romances, the moments of connection that keep us going, that inspire us to make the work, to contribute to our own body of work. We can only do that if we are fueled by moments of tenderness, by great romance, by small moments of kinship and friendship with strangers, with people we've known for decades. It's the only way that you can get to the piano, the desk, the pad, and the paper, right? You have to be able to experience life in order to write about life. And I have a feeling that Stephen Sondheim lived six lifetimes in just his one moment here on Earth. And I'm smiling because it makes me so happy to think about everything that happened in his life that we'll never know about, that no biography or memoir could ever really put forth, express, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm falling apart. When I, when I learned about his death via Twitter, I really did sit in a fog for a minute or two. My mind sort of just kind of vibrated. There was some white noise in my mind. Not since the passage of Whitney Houston has a figure's death affected me in this way, and it's because I am just so used to interacting with their work, and I don't know, at this point, all we can do is honor their legacy and continue to hold up their work so that it continues to gain attention. That's all we can really do. We need to honor Mr. Sondheim in the best way that we know how as theatrical goers, as theatrical enthusiasts. Here, let me just, let me try to shift gears here. I want to, I want to go back to our previous subject, the sound of music, because I want to, I want to give a shout out to a Mr. Bill Lee 
who provided Christopher Plummer's vocals for the 1965 movie adaptation of The Sound of Music. When we were recording that podcast about The Sound of Music, I made a mistake that we took out. We actually took this out. I said, nobody sings Edelweiss, Edelweiss, like Christopher Plummer. And when I heard that, when we were putting the show together in the edit at the edit bay, I realized, well, wait a minute. It was probably very easy for someone to just go in and dub those vocals. Who knows if Christopher Plummer actually sang that song? Well, it turns out Bill Lee did the dubbing. And so I have to say, nobody sings Edelweiss like Bill Lee. That's the accurate thing to say. I also want to give a shout out to Petula Clark, who I learned has played Norma Desmond in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Sunset Boulevard more than any other actress. Ooh, Excuse me, I had to clear my throat in that show's history more than 2,500 times. My God, the more you learn about Petula Clark, the more impressive she seems. The more wonderful she seems. My goodness, thank you, Petula Clark. Oh, my goodness, what a wonder. Okay, so I have two more pieces of Sound of Music ephemera for you. As if the original segment wasn't long enough, we have two more pieces for you. This first piece of ephemera is from Saturday Night Live, specifically the February 29th, 2020 episode. This sketch features John Mulaney and Cecily Strong. Patty, Benny, hello. Hello, I did not forget you. Hello there. Could we play that SNL footage now? This is Turner Classic Movies. Up next, it's Fiddler on the Roof for Wasps, The Sound of Music. Oh, Ralph, you waited! Oh, Liesel, I was beginning to think you wouldn't come. Oh, sorry, I'm late. The captain made me sing in a nightgown in front of all his friends. The captain's your dad, right? Yes, and I'm worried about him. Papa says I'm too young to be in love, but... I think I love you. I am 16, going on 17. I know that I'm naive. Fellows I meet may tell me I'm sweet and willingly I believe. That's true. You are 17, going on 18. Actually, I'm 33. Wait, what? And it goes on from there. <laughs> I don't know if we need to play the whole thing. I believe at one point, John Mulaney's Rolf makes a joke about how he's living in an apartment with five other guys, and one of the guys is named Goebbels. That's funny. <laughs> oh my goodness. Here's the second piece of ephemera I have for you. This is Ariana Grande's Seven Rings, which takes a sample from my favorite things. And this song was featured on her 2019 album, Thank You, Next. Let's hear it. Therapy, my 
right, there you go. I believe that is all of the Sound of Music ephemera I will ever have for you. I do not believe we are ever going to follow up on that again. I don't know if that's true, but I want to say that it's true. Let's get the show facts for this week's subject, Bright Star. Show me the show facts. Okay. Bright Star was a 2016 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on March 24th, 2016 at the Court Theater and ran for 109 performances. The story was written by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. The book was by Steve Martin. The music was by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. And the lyrics were by Edie Brickell. The origins of Bright Star can be found within Love Has Come For You, a 2013 bluegrass album written and performed by Martin and Brickell. Love peaked at number 21 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and sold over 100,000 copies. Not too shabby. Not too shabby, I must say. When the musical first premiered in San Diego in 2014, only two songs from Love had found a place within the score, When You Get to Asheville and Sun's Gonna Shine. This took me by surprise. I assumed Martin and Brickell would have mined their album for more material, thereby turning it into a sort of retroactive concept recording. Incorrect. Wrong. Jonathan. Several Bright Star songs were included on the duo's 2015 album, So Familiar, which dropped about a month before the musical opened in Washington, D.C. The road to Broadway is, as we find, paved with bricks of atomic synergy, my friend. One hand washes the other, etc. But back to the show facts. The director of the original Broadway production of Bright Star was Walter Bobby. The musical director was Rob Berman. Orchestrations by August Eric's Mullen! Eric Smowen. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize, August, if I am mispronouncing that. Choreographer, Josh Rhodes. Scenic design, Eugene Lee. Lighting design, Jaffe Wiedemann. Sound design, Nevin Steinberg. Costume design, Jane Greenwood. And the original Broadway cast was as follows. Carmen Cusack. Broadway debut for Carmen Cusack. Congratulations. Paul Alexander Nolan. Stephen Lee Anderson. Jeff Blumenkrantz. Stephen Bogardus. Hannah Elise D. Hoti, Michael Mulheron, Emily Paget, A.J. Shively, Allison Brenner Darden, Max Shernan, Broadway debut, congratulations, Max Patrick Cummings, Broadway debut for Patrick, congratulations, Sandra Denise, Michael X. Martin, Tony Roach, Broadway debut for Tony, congratulations, Sarah Jane Shanks, and William Yaumans. And again, I apologize for any mispronunciations of any first or last names. Tony Nods, Bright Star was nominated for the following Tony Awards. It was nominated for Best Musical, of course, but also Best Book of a Musical, Steve Martin, Best Original Score, Steve Martin and Edie Brickell, Best Leading Actress in a Musical, Carmen Cusack, and Best Orchestrations, August Eric Smowen. So, five nominations in total. Unfortunately, zero awards when all was said and done. The plot of Bright Star opens in Hayes Creek, North Carolina in 1946. Alice Murphy, editor of the Asheville Southern Journal, introduces herself to the audience. Hello! For years, Alice has dedicated herself to publishing the extraordinary stories of others, but tonight she is telling her story. It may be a hard one to believe, but it happened all the same. 1945. World War II veteran Billy Kane arrives in Hayes Creek, where he reunites with his father, Daddy Kane, and lifelong friend Margot. 
Billy is heartbroken to find his mother has died, though his hopes for the future remain bright. He wants nothing more than to become a writer, and the Asheville Southern Journal is calling his name. Journal staffers Daryl Ames and Lucy Grant turn Billy away without a second thought. Nobody wants to read your stories, kid. Scram! Alice intervenes and agrees to read Billy's stories after he tells a bald-faced lie about Tom Wolfe. A good liar could make a good storyteller, after all. Lucy invites her boss to attend a dance, but Alice declines. There was a time when she would have heartily embraced a night on the town, but those days have long since passed. Flashback, Zebulon, North Carolina, 1923. 16-year-old Alice has fallen head over heels for Jimmy Ray Dobbs, despite the objections of their respective families. The stern and pious Daddy Murphy cannot stand his daughter's wild behavior. You are the black sheep of the family, Alice Murphy. I should have taken the back of my hand two years ago. Jimmy's father, Mayor Josiah Dobbs, merely wishes for his son to marry a girl from a prosperous family. We must uphold our high standard of living, Jimmy Ray. A strong union must be forged. 1945. Billy decides to set down roots in Asheville after receiving a $10 check from Alice, who agrees to buy one of his stories. I am not gonna publish the story, mind you, but I do want you to come back when you have found your voice. Margot is in love with Billy and yearns for him to remain in Hayes Creek, but when push comes to shove, she keeps this affection to herself. After all, who is she to stand in the way of Billy's big city dreams? 1923, Alice and Jimmy Ray make love on a riverbank, which results in Alice becoming pregnant. The town physician, Dr. Norquist, arranges for Alice to stay in a cabin far away from the prying eyes of Zebulon. Alice bides her time by knitting a sweater for her future son, but upon giving birth, she is horrified to learn Mayor Dobbs and Daddy Murphy have agreed to put the boy up for adoption. Her protests, as well as those of Mama Murphy, fall on deaf ears. Mayor Dobbs places the child in a valise and boards a train headed for Hayes Creek. A valise is a small suitcase, just so you know. Midway through the train's journey, the mayor throws the valise from the train and into a river. Yeet! Bye-bye, baby! I'm basically taking a joke from Elizabeth. I must give credit where it is due. Elizabeth, the yeet joke is all yours. I had to have it here in the podcast. I had to have it. Act 2, 1924. Alice leaves Zebulon to attend college in Chapel Hill, though she cannot help but think of her son. 1945. Margot's thoughts turn once more to Billy, who seems so very far away. 1924. Jimmy Ray has made up his mind. He is going to Chapel Hill. He is going to plant himself next to Alice. And together they are going to find their child. Mayor Dobbs, having fallen ill, confesses to his terrible crime. I threw your baby into the river, son! Jimmy Ray crumples, knowing he will never be able to tell Alice the truth or feed her a lie. 1946. 
Billy enjoys a night out with Lucy and Daryl, a night that ends with Billy planting a big wet one on old Lucy. The next day, Billy checks in with Alice, who informs him that his work will soon be published in the journal. Billy is ecstatic. He invites Alice to visit Hayes Creek, where his latest stories take place. Alice takes a liking to the idea, though the trip will have to wait until she returns from Raleigh. Smash cut, Raleigh. Alice pours over the local adoption records, but finds nary a clue regarding the fate of her son. She encounters Jimmy Ray, who finally manages to explain what happened in 1923. My daddy threw a baby into the river, honey. Alice and Jimmy Ray mourn their loss while reaffirming their love for one another. At the same time, Billy confesses his love for Margot. June is busting out all over, I dare say. Side note, Billy compares kissing Lucy to kissing a chicken, and we come to find Margot has experience with kissing chickens. Baka! Weird. Bonus side note, there's a clunky moment around this point in the show where we are led to believe Jimmy Ray has a wife and kids. Oh no, but ha 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 Don't worry, that's just his sister and her kids. Ha ha ha. Do we really need that level of manipulation in this show? I would say not. Alice calls on her father in Zebulon, hello, and together they come to terms with the past. Daddy Murphy has no idea his grandson was thrown into a river, and Alice comforts him with a lie, insisting the boy was adopted by a family from California. Alice then ventures to Hayes Creek, where Billy introduces her to Daddy Kane. They still have the tiny sweater Billy wore as an infant, a sweater Alice recognizes with alarm. Why, that's the sweater I made during my days at the cabin! Could it be true? Could Billy be the son Alice has been searching for? Daddy Kane dispels any remaining doubts. Yes, sir, I found Billy in a valise down by the river. The old man had been out frog gigging. It was a whole thing. Dry ice. <laughs> There's a lot of dry ice. Billy flies the coop as he is too verklempt to deal with the situation. Alice races back to Zebulon and Jimmy Ray, who is similarly thunderstruck by the news. Billy and Margot venture to Asheville, where Billy embraces his biological parents for the first time. We really are getting a thorough tour of North Carolina, I must say. Hayes Creek, Zebulon, Asheville, Chapel Hill, Raleigh, my dogs are barking. Oh, and in case anyone was worried about Lucy stealing Billy away from Margot, don't you fret none. Margot spontaneously introduces herself as Billy's fiance, which causes Lucy to clam the hell up. Billy is delighted by Margot's proposal, which gives Jimmy Ray the idea to spring a proposal on Alice. Does she accept? No, I'm kidding. Yes, she does. She does. You're dang right she does. Another side note. Daryl, you remember Daryl who works with Lucy at the Asheville Southern Journal or whatever? Daryl is gay. Uh, we know Daryl is gay because when he insists he has no ability to gauge the attractiveness of a man, Lucy says in response, oh yes you do. 
<laughs> hey, here's an idea. Let Daryl figure himself out on his own time. Lucy, his own terms. Loose lips sink ships. Lucy, it's the 40s. Shush it! Bright Star is informed by the life of William Moses Gould Helms, who in 1902 was found in a valise along a big river just outside of Irondale, Missouri. At the time, William was only five days old. His rescuers, Bill and Sarah Helms, believed the boy had been tossed into the river from the number four train, Yeet! A tale that was soon set to music by Reverend J.T. Barton. I was unable to find a version of Barton's song, which is called The Ballad of the Iron Mountain Baby, but Wikipedia does provide lyrics. Here's a sample for you. Quote, I have a song I'd like to sing. It's awful, but it's true. About a baby thrown from a train by a woman I know not who. The train was running at full speed. Twas northbound, number nine. And as it crossed the river's bridge, she cast it from the door. Yeet! A mother unkind, a father untrue, and yet I'm bound to say it must have grieved that mother's heart to cast her baby away. Quote, The ballad of the Iron Mountain Baby proved to be a hit, and William soon became a local legend. Bill and Sarah Helms formally adopted William when he was six, despite several women stepping forward to claim their status as his biological mother. William's college education was subsidized by the St. Louis Iron Mountain and Southern Railway, which is ironic for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was thrown from a train as a baby. We know that. Yeet. Number two, William never set foot on a train again until his death in 1953 when his body was sent to Washington County, Missouri. The train delivered him, and the train took him back, I tell ya. Martin and Brickell's Love Has Come For You contains its own version of William's story, Sarah Jane and the Iron Mountain Baby. Let's hear a bit of that track now. Sarah Jane and the Iron Mountain Baby did not make it into the Bright Star score. 
I'm a little concerned about the clarity of the timeline I've tried to establish throughout this episode, so if you would allow me a moment, I would like to put my ducks in a row. So, to review. The rescue of William Helms inspired J.T. Barton to write The Ballad of the Iron Mountain Baby, which in turn led Steve Martin and Edie Brickell to write Sarah Jane and the Iron Mountain Baby for their album, Love Has Come For You. That song, along with other tracks from Love, influenced the development of Bright Star, and several numbers written specifically for the musical found a second home on Martin and Brickell's follow-up album, So Familiar. There! I'm pretty sure I have accounted for all of my ducks. Quack, quack, quack. Where's the bread? Give me the bread, etc. Let's move on. For the purposes of this week's episode, I began my research with the 2013 bluegrass album, Love Has Come For You. Listening to love is like, how would I put this? It's like taking a warm lavender bath while eating slices of cheesecake. It's a pleasure is what it is. It's such a nice pleasing album. Uh, it goes by in a flash. It's a delight. The album addresses a number of grim, southern fried scenarios, including creepy cousins and a woman who throws herself into a river out of despair. But Brickell's vocals consistently frame these scenarios with sun-kissed honeysuckle. I suggest you throw this on one Sunday morning and forget about your troubles for a while. If you are a fan of Missy Higgins, it's safe to say you'll be a fan of Brickell. It's not an unfair point of comparison. I don't know if you know who Missy Higgins is. I would recommend her body of work as well. Okay, and then at this point, I listened to the 2016 original Broadway cast album of Bright Star. I then watched the 2016 composite bootleg of the final Broadway performances, which took place on June 25th and June 26th. 2016, that is on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube. And then I wrapped up my research by watching the 2016 Tony Awards performance of If You Knew My Story. The staging for this number, this Tony Awards presentation, is static and involves a lot of posing and posturing while simultaneously remaining as still as possible. If you recall my talking about my time on a college musical theater tour troupe, there was a lot of this. It seemed very familiar to me because when I was on that troupe, there was a lot of... <laughs> maybe maybe former college theater majors will know what I'm talking about. If you did any musical theater, you know what I'm talking about when you take a couple of steps forward and then you just stop, but you sort of angle yourself out, you put one shoulder in the in the direction of the audience like ah, da, da, ha I'm ha I'm here this is a choice. We haven't really staged the number. Everyone's sort of in their own pod. We're socially distancing and we're all just sort of ah and our eyes are open and we're trying to emote as much as possible, but nobody is looking at each other and nobody is touching each other and <laughs> it's like we're all pieces on a chessboard and nobody's playing. 
nobody's playing the game. The pieces are not moving. Now, by comparison, the staging for the titular number, Bright Star, is very inventive and kinetic. I loved watching that sequence in the bootleg upload. In a perfect world, I think we would have found a way to blend these two numbers, thereby allowing us to highlight Tony nominee Carmen Cusack, while also giving a deeper sense of the plot, which Bright Star does. As an advertisement for the show, if you knew my story on its own, is a tad oblique, and I don't see it lighting a fire under tourists who are looking to see a show. Oh, what do we want to see? I don't know if this number would convince them necessarily to go see Bright Star. Okay, that's all I have to say in regards to my research sources. It is now time to discuss the score of Bright Star. Let's begin with, if you knew my story, we were just talking about that. Let's go. If you knew my story, you'd have a hard time believing me. You'd think I was lying. Joy and sorrow never last. I'll die trying not to live in the past. If you knew
Well, I have to begin my deconstruction of the score by highlighting Carmen Cusack. I love her performance in this show. I love the way that Carmen Cusack elongates the word tell. Tell me I'm not alone. I'm mangling it. But the way she elongates that word tell in tell me I'm not alone, as if it were taffy, it's pure bliss is what it is. She's building a vocal staircase. Tell me she's climbing that staircase, my singing this week, my God, and it allows her to rise into the air. It's like she is figuratively elevating off of the ground, and that is old school bread and butter musical theater divinity is what it is. There is a recurring theme of being alone that we find throughout this score. In this number, the character of Alice Murphy sings, if you knew my story, you'd have a good story to tell, which feeds directly into the phrase, tell me I I'm not alone. I love that it feeds directly into that. If you knew my story, you'd have a good story to tell me I'm not alone. I really like how those two phrases blend together. You don't see that too often in musical theater. I, am I crazy? That seems like a really fun mainstream music convention that Brickell is bringing into this. Maybe I'm nuts. I don't know. See also the number Sun is Gonna Shine, which we heard. That was our opening clip, I believe. And in that song, Mama Murphy attempts to dispel her daughter's sense of isolation by singing, You got the light, you got the way, we're never all alone. And of course, when I hear a phrase like that, we're never all alone, I compare that to Stephen Sondheim's No One Is Alone from Into the Woods. Of course, No One Is Alone is much more shaded. There's sort of a gray cloud surrounding that song. That song is an affirmation. There is optimism and hope within No One Is alone, but it also serves as a warning, and you can't find that sort of shading in Sun is Gonna Shine, admittedly, but I like the idea of no one is alone. I don't care what the context of it is. I just like the idea of someone telling someone, look, you're not alone. I'm right here. It'll be fine. We'll get through this together. See, also, here's another example of alone, loneliness, recurring throughout the Bright Star score. The song At Last, in which Alice makes this declaration she says, Lonely moments nearly broke my will to live. Something always told me to long for this. Oh, love is coming home at last. Loneliness is a decidedly mighty factor in the lives of every character in this musical, from Alice and Margot to Billy and Daddy Murphy. It's southern loneliness is what it is. This sort of loneliness that comes as a result of southern pride and southern deception and other gothic sins. I love it. I'm ready for my life to begin. I'm ready for it all to start. My heart's about to bust. Don't lead the way. I must follow my own bright star. Many a long cold night. I huddled down in the dark. I made a vow. If I ever made it out, I'd follow my own bright star. Bright star, keep shining for me. Shine on and see me through. Bright star, keep shining for me. And one day I'll shine for you. You never know what life will bring. Only what 
take but a tweak or two for Bright Star, the song Bright Star, to find a place within Roger Miller's Big River. That's right, I'm citing Big River, the musical. <laughs> we were talking about a real river a moment ago called Big River, but now we're talking about Big River, the musical. And I can absolutely picture a barefoot Huckleberry Finn delivering these lines. Bright Star, keep shining for me. Shine on and see me through. Bright star, keep shining for me, and one day I'll shine for you. Huck's desire for his life to really begin, an expression heard throughout the song Waiting for the Light to Shine, is the same desire felt and expressed by Billy here in this song. I keep expecting Bright Star to transition into On My Way from Violet. Specifically, I always combine these two phrases. So we begin with Bright Star. Many a long, cold night, I huddled down in the dark, and at that point I expect it to transition into promises that can't go wrong as I travel on my way. Let's see if we can actually line those moments up. Can we fuse them? I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. Let's try it here. Many a long cold night Okay, so it's not perfect in execution. The tempos would need a bit of an adjustment for it to truly work. But it works up here in my old brain pan, the sauce of the brain. That's what makes it work, okay? I know it didn't really work. So I apologize. What do you want? I'm sorry. Fine.
Watching the Alice of 1945 transform into the Alice of 1923 via a carefully executed onstage costume change, that is, that's a magical moment. And I'm so glad I watched the bootleg recording of the show. I know some people have problems with bootlegs. I don't really have a problem with them. I don't tend to engage with them all that often, but I also don't feel that they're wrong. I don't think that they're wrong. It's, we have bigger fish to fry. We don't need to be arguing about that. Anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting into a foxhole, a, a ditch. I gotta get myself out of this ditch. The craft and precision on the part of everyone involved in this moment, this costume change, it's undeniable. And I love the image of Carmen Cusack being swept across the stage within scenic designer Eugene Lee's shack. The way that this shack moves across the stage like a ship, oh my god, every time that shack moved, it held my attention. Oh, I was captivated. I love a gliding effect across the stage. It's very cinematic, actually. It's, I love a sweep. A glide, a sweep, I love it. Get a shotgun, have to run me, and I feel hide in the shadows, fall out of trees. Wait by your window, whisper, bless you when you sneeze. Someone will look at you just like this. Someone will ask you for a kiss. You're a smart girl, make a fool of somebody. I'm a smart guy, and I know that it won't be me. Second look before you set your sights on me I'm a restless small town boy With a heart as wild as a big city
Mama, Whoa Mama, has the scrappy give and take I want but never get from 16 going on 17 from our last subject, The Sound of Music. That song, for me, looks more and more pale and limp with each passing day, I gotta tell ya. Both of these numbers, 16 going on 17 and Whoa Mama from Bright Star, both numbers involve young men who paint portraits of the future for the young women in their lives. But unlike Rolf, Jimmy Ray doesn't really view himself as a teacher or a guardian, an instructor, if you will. Rolf's message in The Sound of Music is essentially, uh, listen, you big baby with your bottle and your bassinet with your fucking bonnet. Men will try to ruin you. They will ply you with, I don't know, liquor and candy because you are naive and stupid and only I, the man, can protect you from them. Jimmy Ray's message is pretty different. He is also saying, look, men are going to come after you, and this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, his his perspective of Alice is, you're one smart cookie, and you're going to have these men wrapped around your finger. And <laughs> considering that, I know I ain't going to be one of those men. I am staying far away from you. No, 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 no. You're not going to get me under your heel, Alice Murphy, you scrappy little, you rascal. Now get along, little doggy. Despite the teasing that occurs between Jimmy Ray and Alice, I do believe that these characters have a shared respect for one another, which cannot be said of Rolf and Liesel. And unlike Liesel, Alice is merely looking for a good time, which makes her interplay with Jimmy Ray more casual and realistic and appealing. It's much more modern. Alice and Jimmy Ray are not paper doll characters devoid of interiority. They have blood and guts, squishy guts, and take each day as it comes, like actual young people. I care about them. I do not care about Rolf and Liesel. Sorry, not sorry. is a great song. As a reminder, this is one of the two songs from Love Has Come For You that made its way into the Bright Star score. This is a ballad for anyone who feels as if they have been left behind while others moved on. I am in the small town. I am stuck in a rut. 
I am seemingly trapped by routine while those I care about, the ones who got away, they're in big cities, they're pursuing their dreams, and I feel like I am never going to have that happen for me. I don't have, I, I don't know if I have the courage to get up off my booty and take a bus, take a plane, take a train, take a car somewhere and start my life over. And they are watching everyone from afar, especially in this day and age of social media. Who can't relate to a song like Asheville? Margot is experiencing a fit of FOMO. A fit of FOMO is what she's experiencing. Let's compare. <laughs> oh boy. Look at me. Listen to me. Elizabeth, I hope this episode is, is meeting your expectations. I really do. Let's compare this version, this Broadway version of the song, to that found on Love Has Come For You. Let's play that. When you get to Asheville Send me an email Tell me how you're doing How it's treating you could have retained that reference to email. Talk about a modern age, write me an email. I actually really like how Brickell's original version of the song includes a reference to email. That's fun. I kind of miss it, but you can't talk about email in the 40s. They didn't have it. So there is a recurring convention of this score that I will describe thusly. Musical phrases or thoughts 
that are interrupted midway for the sake of a breath, a flash pause that calls for a, a purely physical expression on the part of the actor. For example, in the opening number, If You Knew My Story, Alice Murphy sings the following line like this with a built-in pause. If you knew my story, you'd have a hard time believing me. There's a pause there that you have to act your way through. And then in this number, Please Don't Take Him, which we just heard a bit of, Alice sings, You can't take him. He's my baby. You can't take my baby boy. There are these built-in pauses. And generally speaking, it's more common for characters in musicals to sing without hesitation, right? As if they are merely conduits or vessels for their own emotions. It all kind of comes pouring out of them. But the people of Bright Star often need a second to build upon what they have already begun to say. Martin and Brickell are exploring how the rhythm of a song can reflect the natural halting rhythm of the spoken word, especially when those words are influenced by raw feeling. Daddy Murphy's, this is a different point that I have regarding this number, Daddy Murphy's central argument for sending the baby away boils down to think of what the kids at school will say behind his back. Okay, this struck me as thin at first, but, 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 when you consider Daddy Murphy views Alice as a child, it makes sense that he would think to use terms a child would understand. It's just funny to me how this man's darkest imaginings begin and end with playground gossip, mendacity, and scuttlebutt. Oh my god, you would curse your boy to such a fate? This is the same man who regrets not having taken a hand to his daughter when she was younger. You'd think he'd you'd think he'd be a little bit more fire and brimstone when it comes to this situation. Uh, but there you go. I don't know. I don't know how to I don't know how to explain Daddy Murphy. He's a weirdo. and blood He was just a baby He was my son There goes our chance for happiness I 
Alexander Nolan's performance throughout Heartbreaker is first rate. I don't know how to describe it. Otherwise, we are cutting through Jimmy Ray's signature bluster and his humor and exposing his nerves to the open air. I completely understand the character's inability to face Alice. It's a terrible thing that he does, not going to her. But you realize that he feels he has no ability to make a choice. He doesn't believe he has the courage to tell her the truth, and he knows for a fact he cannot lie to her. We went over this in the plot, but I just want to go over it again because that is absolutely crushing. This idea that you can't tell someone the truth and you can't lie to them, so you run away from them? Oy, 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 that is sad is what it is. <laughs> that is S-A-D is what it is. Okay, that's it. That's all I have to say. But what are you looking at me for, Patty and Betty? Let's go. Next, next, next. I can't. I had a vision of how our life would be Rolling like a river, peaceful, wild and free I had a vision of how our life would go A happy little family playing on the porch Oh, you play piano. 
Having already recognized Nolan and Cusack's dynamite performances, hello, we have, we have referenced how talented these people are, I do feel the need to highlight this sticky widget within the lyrics of I Had a Vision. Again, very good song, but I want to talk about the structure of these verses. So we have this verse that employs an A-A-B-C rhyme scheme. So we have, I had a vision of how our life would be, rolling like a river, peaceful, wild, and free. I had a vision of how our life would go, a happy little family playing on the porch. Where's that porch coming from? We had A, A, B, and then we had C. A, A, B, C. B, free, go, porch. Okay? And then later, we don't employ that same rhyme scheme in any of the other verses. After that, we just stick to A, A, B, B. I had a vision of how our life would be. Full of love and laughter and sweet harmony, A, A. I had a vision of how our life would go. All of our kids singing while you played piano, B, B. I had a vision of how our life would be. Everything was beautiful. You were next to me, AA. I had a vision of how our life would go. Everything was wonderful, and I loved you so, BB. Why, what is the deal with Porch? Why is Porch sticking out like such a sore thumb? What are we doing? What are we doing there? What are we doing there? Actually, that kind of weird left turn is in J.T. Barton's lyrics that I think we quoted earlier in the episode. I think he sort of goes zag when you expect him to zig. There's a there's a random word that comes out of nowhere. Maybe Burkell is trying to honor Barton in some way by kind of throwing a wrench into the system just for that one moment. I don't know. I don't know, but it stuck out to me. I don't know if it stuck out to anybody else. It probably didn't. Uh, let's hear a bit of At Long Last, shall we? Uh-oh, Mr. Shelley's back. Oh, thank God I didn't forget about that joke. Okay, now play it. As the sky was darkening through years of night, I felt a door was opening this gorgeous morning light at last at last at last at last at long last the answer to a mother's prayer Coming home 
Martin and Brickell's reliance on repetition in songs like Always Will and At Long Last could prove to be a hang-up for actors who, like sharks, if I may compare actors to sharks, are always hoping to move forward in a given scene. An echoing refrain sounds more at home in a song designed for the radio than it does for one designed for narrative theater, where it could turn into a series of speed bumps that get in the way of progression. The following statement may seem a bit obvious, but go with me, indulge me. Lyrics inform an actor's vocal choices, right? How you sing, how you sing, the coloring and the force of those choices. And asking an actor to repeat certain phrases again and again and again, like always will, always will, always will, always will, always will, or at long last, at long last, at long last, at long last, at long last. Long last, this could result. <laughs> this could result in the actor going into autopilot and muscling their way through the moment rather than really experiencing it. Perhaps I, you know what? Perhaps I should only speak for myself. If it were me, I would probably go cross-eyed if I had to sing at long last four or five times in a row. All of that said, the reservations I would feel are obviously not shared by Cusack, who navigates her way through each and every echo with ease. All right, fine. <laughs> This is not a show problem. This is a me problem, okay? Hands up, I surrender, I admit it. That is all I have to say regarding the score of Bright Star. It is now time to hear from our fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. And if you think, I never say this. I always say that I'm going to make a mention of this more often. But, of course, I have my mug of 5678 Coffee. Patty is raising her mug. Benny is raising his own mug. We are brand champions here. We love 5678 Coffee. So let's hear from them. Take it away, five, six, seven, eight. Unpopular opinion, uh, sing two better than one. I'm Andrew Garfield. This bucket is filled with musicals. This is Andrew Garfield's Bucket of Musicals, sponsored by 5678 Coffee. You can count on it. Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Genius, inventive, wild, odd, John Cameron Mitchell, brilliance, and I love it. I've never seen it on stage, only seen the film. And I love John Cameron Mitchell and love what he's about and radical. John Larson would approve. Cabaret, oh, it's dark. It's a really dark musical. My friend Eddie Redmayne is about to play the MC, I believe, in London with Jesse Buckley. My very good friend Emma Stone played Sally Bowles to great acclaim. I remember seeing, <laughs> this is a sweet story, the dress rehearsal for Cabaret with Emma. She was so nervous because it was her first, really, stage musical professionally. I remember she was like, you have to tell me if I need to run away and not do this. I remember watching it, like her first number. I was like, oh, you're going to be great, really. I was like, oh, no, there's nothing to worry about. You're amazing and you're going to nail it. So that was really cool. I have a lovely association with Cabaret. I saw it a bunch of times, obviously. Next, ah, Violet I've never seen. I don't know anything about Violet. I know the girl has the face thing, and I know she's got a suitcase, and it's on a bus. I know that Brian Stokes Mitchell famously played Violet, I think. I wish I had seen that. Oh, La La Land. Is that how you say it now? La La Land uh, did not win Best Picture at the Oscars. Uh, definitely did not. It's a beautiful film. Damien's a great director. Ryan 
Emma are just uh, cinema movie star heaven. I love this film, and I love both of those actors. I love what they created. It's it's really like soulful and beautiful, and the music's great. And uh, oh, la la land. <laughs> yeah, I love it. We're going to play whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, as long as it's pure jazz. Producers, I mean, a work of art, a masterpiece. The remake, the remake with Nathan Lane. I love Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane is one of my favorite theater actors and, and general people love the producers. Hairspray. I love this musical. Pretty radical, pretty weird, pretty out there. I've never seen it on stage. Would like to. Imagine my little girl, regular. Into the Woods is classic Sondheim, genius Sondheim. So, fun fact, in the original version of Into the Woods, the actress Daniel Furland, who plays the original Red Riding Hood, may crop up in our movie, Tick, Tick, Boom. Look out for her in a market research scene. That sounds boring, but I promise you, it's a really fun scene. Sound of Music. Don't love this musical. Don't know why. Don't know why. Love Christopher Plummer. This was Little Shop of Horrors was the last show I saw in New York before the pandemic with my friend, Jiminy Glick. I loved it. I'd never seen it on stage. So cool. Sort of weird. How did that one get made? What's it about? It's about a plant that eats people. I mean, where do you get that? It's just an acid trip. Beautiful end of failure. Care to comment? I mean, what a great one to end on is singing in the rain. I mean, the perfect place to end. Classic and beautiful and maybe my favorite dance number of all time with Make Him Laugh. I listen to this a lot during the pandemic, actually. I listen to Good Morning, Good Morning. I, I sang that every morning for a year and a half while I was alone during the pandemic. There, so this has been Andrew Garfield doing musicals in a bucket, or whatever. Thanks for watching. Uh, Tick Tick Booms on Netflix now. Ta-da! Final thoughts regarding Bright Star. Okay, here's what I have to say. If I had no reference for the plot of Bright Star, and I went into a performance of this show completely greenhorned, if I had greenhorns and I walked into this show, I would like to think I'm not trying to puff myself up here, not trying to make myself sound too, too smart, too, too smart, but I would like to think that I could see the reveal of Billy being Alice's son about a thousand miles away. Is that, uh, is that, is that a jerky thing of me to say? I feel like that is sort of a twist that isn't really a twist. Maybe, maybe we are supposed to sort of casually figure that out as time goes on, and then eventually the characters kind of catch up with us. They kind of catch up with us is what they do. And I guess that this is the most egregious example of that. You, normally you don't really want the characters in your piece. Uh, you don't want the, the characters to be catching up with what the audience knows, right? That can be tricky. That can, that can lead to a bit of a, a bit of a malaise, a bit of a apathetic quality in your audience when, when they've already figured everything out. I don't think this is a terrible example of that, but I can definitely see a lot of people putting the pieces together way before anyone else does. I mean, how could the characters in the piece know what's going on? They, they, they will never know what's going on until, until the, 
<laughs> until the show is ready for them to figure it out, of course. But I don't know. Am I being a jerk? I, I, Billy is the only character who could possibly be her son. And there's no way this show is going to end without a son showing up. And it's not going to be a random stranger. <laughs> that would be nuts. That would be very, very strange if a, if a complete stranger showed up and said, Mama, it's me. <laughs> that would... And Billy's Billy's whole arc is just, it's its own thing. <laughs> and his relationship with Alice, it's just its own unique thing. Not mother and son. Not mother and son. Just, you know, professional colleagues, friends. <laughs> that would be wild. What I actually would have, I don't know, I think I would have found that to be pretty amazing. Because that is more realistic, right? I know this is a fable. I'm not trying to ding the show. Elizabeth, I hope this episode met your expectations. Okay, so as a reminder, in 2016, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was former subject Hamilton, and the additional nominees that year were School of Rock, which we have already covered, Waitress, which we have already covered, and, oh, this is the only show we have not covered, Shuffle Along, or The Making of the Musical Sensation of 1921, and all that followed. The question is, of course, we always pose this question, did Bright Star deserve to win Best Musical over Hamilton? Should we hop on a time machine and affect time, reality, history? No, I think Hamilton deserves to keep that medallion. If anyone is coming in at a second place, I believe it's Waitress. I believe Hamilton, Waitress, uh, Bright Star, and then, sure, Shuffle Along, maybe in last place, but I only put it there because there is no cast album for that show. Isn't that nuts? We never got a cast album for Shuffle Along. Every show, I said this on Twitter, every show deserves a cast album. No exceptions. I don't care if this show never officially opens. I don't care if it runs for two performances or a million performances. We should have a historical document regarding these scores that everybody can access. What the hell? How am I gonna... Uh, I'm just gonna have to put that show in the Phantom Zone. We haven't talked about the Phantom Zone in quite some time. <laughs> Long-time listeners will know what I'm talking about. But we will cross that bridge when we come to it right now. It is my job to rank Bright Star against all of... I hope I haven't said Bright Eyes at any point in this episode. I swear to God, if I have said Bright Eyes, if I have made a reference to Tim Burton's film, Bright Eyes, oh, I will be apoplectic, is what I will be. It is now time to rank Bright Star against all of the other shows we have talked about here on the podcast. If you would like to take a look at this complete ranking, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod, access our link tree, go to the spreadsheet. The second tab of that spreadsheet will provide all that you need to know regarding our ranking. I have decided to place Bright Star at number 51 between Steel Pier at number 50 and She Loves Me at number 52. That's it. That's all you need to know. As far as show-related ephemera is concerned, I would simply like to highlight a couple of the songs I enjoyed from the album Love Has Come For You. We have put together a little medley for you. The first clip you're going to hear is from the song Get Along, Stray Dog, and that will be followed by Yes, She Did, and then the montage will end with a selection from the song Remember Me This Way. That's a really good one. Okay, let's play that montage now. Yes, and there's room for one more Come and help yourself if you would Get along, get along, get 
she didn't go to the river. Tell me she didn't throw herself in. Yes, she did, Daddy. Yes, she did, Daddy. Yes, she did, Daddy. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. Tell me she didn't leave her little children alone in the world with a drunken man. Yes, she did, Daddy. Yes, she did, Daddy. Yes, she did, Daddy. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Real Women Are Not Scabs, Mary Lou. Everyone ready? Then away we go! subject here on the main feed is a 1994, is that right? Yes, 1994 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and it only ran for 137 performances. There was no cast album. Speaking of no cast album, this show is destined for the Phantom Zone. We'll talk about the Phantom Zone. (laughs) We'll talk about it in that episode. Do you know the subject? It's Cyrano, the musical. Aha! As opposed to all of the other Cyrano musicals. Holy hell, if you don't think I haven't looked into that, all of the Cyrano musicals that came before and after Cyrano the musical, you're kidding yourself. That is a, whew, that is a convoluted bit of rope that we are going to have to untangle. But that episode will drop December 15th. Look out for it. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Okra Project. You can donate $1, $3, $5, or $10 a month. If you donate $1 a month, you get Monday early access to these main feed episodes. Everyone else has to wait until Wednesday. You'll get them on Monday. You'll get a verbal shout-out each and every week. Thank you for donating at least $1 a month. Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, H. 
SJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marquez, Rob, Shauna, Shianti, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Zach, and Marisol. You also get 16 bonus episodes all about the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, a review of the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a full review of the film Cats, Emma, the stage musical adaptation of Emma, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, again, rest in peace, Mr. Sondheim, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, original cast album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, a trailer review for West Side Story, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, and Diana. Now, coming December 8th, next Wednesday, is our coverage of NBC's Annie Live. That will be the 17th bonus episode we release. Oh my gosh, how many will we release over the course of this podcast's run? I don't know, 50, 1,000? I don't know. You also get, we're not done with this tier, $1 a month patrons also get access to Season 1, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a special series for which I check in with myself via the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself. And you also get all 12 episodes we've produced as part of the M3, the Movie Musical Man series. Oh, that is returning in 20. 2022. That is a series dedicated to trios, trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. In each episode, we talk about three movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Okay, let's move on to the $3 a month tier. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You get all 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and a very special episode all about season one of Julie and the Phantoms. $5 a month will get you everything I've already mentioned, plus you will get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast. That's what Elizabeth did. Elizabeth wanted us to talk about Bright Star, and so we did. You also get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and you get access to our Broadway in Chicago review series. The next entry in that series will drop December 22nd. It's all about Pretty Woman, the musical. I'm going to go see Pretty Woman the Musical. Wish me luck. You also get Shout About It Volumes 1, 2, 3, and 4. That's right. We have finally released Volumes 3 and 4 in the Shout About It series. These are collections, compendiums, if you will, of 5, 6, 7, 8 coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 100 episodes of the podcast. It's true. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed, you get Season 1, 12 episodes of The Snub Club, a series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and returning in February of 2022, we have Turn It Off, a series dedicated to off-Broadway musicals, Emojiland, Soft Power, The Fantastics, We Are the Tigers, Bat Boy, and A Strange Loop were the subjects of our first six episodes, and when we get to February of 2022, we're going to start releasing six more episodes. Yes, yes! If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please take a moment to write a five-star review. We want 60 five-star reviews. We have 52. When we get to 60, I will record and release 
You know this. You know this. A special episode all about Disney's Zombies franchise. If you're streaming the show, that could be through Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter, at musicalmanpod, and feel free to write me an email, musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny. Oh, my gosh, you're amazing. Alex Green, thank you for our beautiful logo. And thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Ha <laughs> ha! You know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Venusian, and good night. to mother and I'm moving out. Really? You bought a house? No, I rent it with roommates. <laughs> Fritz and Hans and Kevin and Goebbels and four other guys named Hans. That's a lot of Nazis.